Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Eve. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, hanging out with us on this Christmas Eve morning. You know, if you grew up in the church, then you probably know that there are at least two different accounts of the Christmas story. I think that there's three. I think John actually has his own version. It sounds a little bit different, but anyway, that's for a different sermon. But uh, traditionally, Matthew and and Luke are the two accounts of the Christmas story. And while there are uh, some similarities between those two accounts, there's also quite a few differences, not contradicting differences, just different perspectives of the same magnificent, miraculous story. One of those differences is found in verses 21 and 23 of Matthew chapter 1, so that's kind of what we're going to focus on uh, this morning for my message. After telling us some of the, the backstory of how Joseph and Mary were, were engaged or betrothed, and, and then Mar- Mary's immaculate conception, and then uh, Joseph's struggle and confusion over that, Matthew tells us that an angel appeared to Joseph with this message, and we pick it up at Matthew 1, verse 21. This is the angel speaking and speaking to Joseph. And she, speaking of Mary, will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means literally Savior. That's what it means, Savior. Then Matthew references the prophet Isaiah, who foretold the Christmas story over 700 years before it happened, Skip down to verse 23, and this is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Matthew 1, 23, he says, Look, the virgin shall conceive, will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and then watch watch this next statement. Even though they were going to name the baby Jesus, that's not what we're going to call him. His name's going to be Jesus, but this baby's going to have a nickname. We're going to call him, and let's read this, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, His name was Jesus, his name was Savior, but his nickname was Emmanuel, God with us. Anyone have a nickname growing up? Anyone have a nickname? Anyone have a nickname you liked growing up? I had a nickname and I hated it. The only good thing to come from my nickname is as I've gotten older in life, I found that it's made a good password on some of my online accounts because it's so weird and bizarre, no one would ever think of it. That's why I can't tell you what it is because then you'd break into my accounts and... (laughs) steal all my money. Nicknames are usually given to someone based on a quality or characteristic of that person. I had a classmate in elementary school. His name was Steve Tate. And uh, Steve was a rather um, large uh, kid. So anytime we chose kickball teams, Steve was always the first one picked. Not because he was so fast, but because he was so big, he could kick the ball a mile. And so someone came up with this nickname, uh, Tater Bomb. His name Steve Tate. Tater bombs. From then on, everyone called him Tater Bomb. And I'm sure that Steve just loves it today when he runs into people from elementary school. Hey, Tater Bomb. He's like, no, 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 don't do that, right? So uh, he probably uses uh, his for his uh, online account's password as well. Anyway, Jesus' name was Savior, but his nickname was God with us. If you think about it, in Jesus' case, his name, Savior, really wouldn't come into play till about 30, 32 years later. But part of what qualified Jesus to be our Savior was by his being with us. That's why the angel said, his name's Savior, but we're going to call him God with us. You know, for thousands of years, people believed in God, 
but the God that they believed in was uh, this faceless, impersonal, unapproachable God who, who sat on this big throne in heaven. And, and even, even though the people loved God, there really wasn't anything personal about that relationship with him. Matthew's account of the Christmas story shows us that God's not some big, overbearing, uh, unapproachable taskmaster. No, Matthew shows us that part of Jesus' mission wasn't just to save us from our sins, because if that were the case, he could have done that. He didn't have to live on this planet for 32 years, right? Think about it. You know, he could have died as a teenager. Why was it, think about this, why was it that the father let his son, his only begotten son, live 32 years before allowing him to be crucified? I'll tell you why. It's because part of Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost, because that's what he said he came to do. I came to seek and save the lost. Part of that mission included spending time on this broken, messed up planet so he could experience the same brokenness, the same hurt, the same betrayal, and the same hang-ups that we do. Here's how the writer of Hebrews explains it. In Hebrews 4, verse 15, the writer says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. In other words, when we come to Jesus you know, with our problems and our issues, uh, listen up, because this is going to help some of you this morning. When, when you come to Jesus, he, he's not like you know, some, oh, you know, here you are again, look what the cat dragged in, right? Are you serious? You're coming with that same problem. When, when are you going to get past this? How long are you going to struggle with this? I think sometimes we tend to view God in, in, in that way. But God's not like that at all. No, according to the Bible, Jesus actually empathizes with us when we come before him. Why? Because he experienced many of the same things that we have experienced. Matthew goes on to say, or the, the, the writer goes on to say, but we have one who has been tempted, and then say these next three words with me, in every way, in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In other words, and I, look, I don't know exactly how this works, but somehow, some way, the reason Jesus lived all those years, the 32, 33 years on this planet, was so that he could experience all the same struggles, trials, emotions, and temptations that you and I do. But, again, the caveat is he did it without falling into temptation. Verse 16 of Hebrews 4, let us then, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. In other words, you don't have to be afraid of God. God's not the Wizard of Oz, and we're Dorothy, you know, kind of walking up there, you know, shaking our knees, knocking, I want to go home. What do you want? I want to go home. No, no, no. Matthew pulls the curtain back and shows us who God really is. No, 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 no. He's not like that at all. He's a God who can empathize with us, right? It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Anyone use a little mercy right now? Anyone use a little grace right now? Anyone use a lot of mercy, a lot of grace right now? See, this is huge. you got to understand this, because if you don't have a right view of God, you're not going to have a right relationship with him, which leads us to our big idea for this message. And the big idea is this. The way you view God is the way that you're going to know him. The way you view God that's how you're going to know him and relate to him. See, that's why the Christmas story is so important. It helps give us a, a proper view of God. Here, here's this same passage in Hebrews from the message paraphrase, because he kind of unpacks it a little bit more in this paraphrase. Hebrews 4.15 in the message says, we don't have a high priest who's out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. Verse 16, so let's walk right up to him. I like that. So let's walk right up to him. And get what he's ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. Take the mercy, accept the help. 
You know, it's always easier to empathize with someone if you've been through the same thing, right? You think about the, the difficult times that you've gone through, the very hard times you've gone through. If you think back over those, probably the people that were the most source of, of hope and encouragement to you were, were people that maybe went through something similar, and so they were able to kind of identify and empathize with you. In fact, uh, the, the Apostle Paul tells us that there will be times that God will, if we'll let him, if we'll let him, he'll use our life experiences, especially especially our difficult ones, to minister to and empathize with others the same way that he used Jesus' life to empathize and minister with us. Here's how he said it in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4. This is the message. He says, he, speaking of, about Jesus, comes, comes alongside us when we go through hard times, and before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who's going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. I've shared this before, how one of our most difficult times was when we had a, a full-term stillborn little girl between our, our oldest child, our only daughter, Chelsea, and our second son, our oldest son, Evan. Sue was about a week overdue when she went for her doctor's appointment. During that, during that checkup, the doctor couldn't find the baby's heartbeat and discovered that the baby wasn't alive, so they started Sue on Pitocin, and a while later she gave birth to a a perfectly formed, eight-pound, seven-ounce little girl with a full head of, of black hair, but she wasn't alive. Talk about not seeing that coming. It was a difficult, it was a confusing time for both of us. We never had, it wasn't a faith crisis. We, 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 never, we never thought about walking away from God through that. But I'll tell you what, shopping for baby caskets has a way of exposing the brokenness and of this world. It'll do that to you. Shortly before coming home from the hospital, a young couple from our church came to visit us. And it's interesting because after they left, there was just a sense of encouragement and hope within us that we didn't have before they came. And we've talked about it since then. And like, you know, there, there was nothing that we can point to that they said. You know, they prayed for us, but there was nothing in their prayer that we can point to that that you know would say, yeah, that's what gave us hope or that's what encouraged us. But, but there definitely was something. And Sue will tell you this too, man. When, when that couple left, all of a sudden we had hope. We, we were encouraged. A couple weeks later after the funeral, I'm sitting in my office because we were youth pastors at the time. And the pastor came walking by and he stepped in and asked how we were doing. And I told him that we were you know, still grieving, you know, trying, trying to work through it, but but, you know, we're doing better. And, and then I shared how this couple from the church had stopped by and, and visited with us and just, you know, something about their visit just really, we were encouraged when they left. And then he told me this. He said, you know, that couple, they had stillborn twins in their first year of marriage. And I didn't know that. So neither, neither one of us knew that. They didn't say that when they came to visit us. But then it made sense to me made sense to me. That's why they were able to minister to us. Because I guarantee you, at some point when they were in that dark time, they looked to God. And God ministered to them and healed them. And then later in life, they were able to minister to us and empathize with us and bring healing to us. God ended up giving this couple a couple other kids later in their marriage. In fact, those, both of those kids were in our youth group because we were youth pastors at the time. Great kids. In fact, we named our oldest son Evan after their kid because he's just such a great kid. The point being, if we'll let him, if we'll let him, 
God does this amazing thing where he'll not only heal us, but he'll use us to bring hope and healing to others. See, this is what makes Michelle Hutchison's story so compelling. It's what makes Ryan and Jessica Whalen's story so compelling. It's what makes Debbie McCullough's story so compelling. It's, It's not the tragic event. It's not the heartbreak that it brought. No, what makes their stories compelling is where they are today in spite of having gone through that. As they look through the fog and the darkness of their unimaginable circumstances, The Lord brought healing to them and then, listen, and then used them to empathize with and help and bring hope to healing and healing to others. Because when we do that, when we, I like how Michelle put it, she said, when I leaned into the pain, when I leaned into the pain, when we lean into the pain, God makes us better, not bitter. This Christmas season, God wants you to know that he hears, he cares, and he really does understand. So here are three areas where Jesus understands our brokenness and empathizes with us. Number one, he understands relationships. He understands relationships. So if you're going through a difficult time in a relationship now, whether it's a, a family member or a coworker or a boss or, or a neighbor, you need to know that Jesus, look, Jesus understands. Remember, Jesus, Jesus was rejected by his hometown and his family. So he knows rejection. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is back in his hometown, and he's teaching in church one day, in the church he grew up in, the synagogue that he grew up in. And, and I want you to look at how the people received him. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. This is how the people, isn't this the carpenter? Because that was Jesus' trade, you know. He, he, he did, his, you know, his father, Joseph, was a carpenter, so that's what he was. So just like his earthly father, Jesus was a carpenter. So the people are like, no, wait a minute, what's he doing teaching? Who's he think he is? Isn't he this, the carpenter? Isn't, isn't, isn't this Mary's son and the brother, actually half-brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? In other words, who's this guy think he is? Who's this guy think he is? It also shows us, this is interesting because this, this verse here also shows us that Jesus had at least six siblings. Notice it mentions James, Joseph, Judas, not the betrayer, but a different one, uh, and Simon, and, and since it says sisters, since sisters is plural, then we know that he had at least two sisters, so do the math, and we know that there were at least seven children growing up in Jesus' home, at least, and probably more. And I guarantee you this, there is no way that seven Jewish children are going to have their own bedroom in first century Judea. So parents, can you imagine the bedtime routine in Jesus' home growing up? Sue and I had our annual Gramps and Grammy holiday sleepover this past week, which means we had 11 of our 16 grandkids from Thursday at 5 o'clock till 11 o'clock Friday. You know, I forgot just how chaotic and frustrating bedtime routines can be. (laughs) Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Started getting them ready for bed at about a 9.15 at 11.47 and four cuss words later, <laughs> half of them were still awake. I think I only lost my salvation twice through that. My point being, what was my point? I had a point here. My point being, I'm sure, I'm sure Jesus' household had its share of conflict because they knew him growing up. Look at this. Because they knew him growing up. Look at the reception that Jesus got when he went back to his home church. And they took offense at him. At Jesus, they took offense at him. But it wasn't just his hometown that rejected Jesus. His own family, 
His own family rejected him at one point. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus was teaching and ministering. He was doing a Bible study at a home. Think about this. That's all he's doing. He's leading a Bible study at someone's home. And his family shows up while he's leading this Bible study. And look how they responded. And keep in mind, Jesus, he's just leading a Bible study. That's all he's doing. And look at his family's response in Mark 3, verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. <laughs> what? Jesus is ministering to people, you know, teaching from the Torah, teaching the Bible. And his family shows up and says, look, don't listen to this guy. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. That's how, that's how Jesus' family treated him. Just... Just out of curiosity, let me see a show of hands here. Anyone have at least one crazy person in your family? And, and, and if you're not sure, if you can't think of anyone, <laughs> I'll just let you connect the dots there. Jesus also knows what it's like to be single. He knows what it's like to be single. And are you ready for this? It was worth coming to church this morning just to hear this. Jesus also knows what it's like to be married. What? Where'd you read that, Pastor? Now, it doesn't say that Jesus got married, but remember, one of his other nicknames is he's called the Bridegroom of Christ. We're the church, the Bride of Christ, and Jesus is called the bridegroom, right? And we're told that he loves us and is committed to us just like a husband loves his, his wife. But see, Jesus knows what it's like to be cheated on because anytime we sin against him, anytime we choose someone or something over him, that's the same as, as cheating on him, right? It's as though we've cheated on him. So, so yes, any marital pain, conflict, pain, tension, he does, Jesus really does understand. He understands. So if he understands, then here's a question for you. When are you going to talk to him about your relationships? When are you going to talk to him? If he understands, and he does, when was the last time you talked to Jesus about a, an unhealthy relationship that you have right now? Find some time this holiday season to talk to God about any relationships in your life that you're struggling with or aren't what they should be. Just take some time. Maybe just go for a walk and just pour your heart out to him. Because he understands broken, strained, hurting relationships. He also understands life. He understands relationships. Jesus also understands life. And I know that sounds pretty broad. I mean, that's a pretty wide brush that I use when I, when I say life. But I want you to remember that Jesus was prepared for ministry by the time he was 12 years old. Remember the time that Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to Jerusalem uh, when he was 12 for his bar mitzvah, basically they were going to bring him to the temple to, to dedicate him. And keep in mind, a 12-year-old Jewish boy in the first century is not the same as a 12-year-old American kid in the 21st century. At the age of 12, Jesus was only one year away from being fully accountable as a man. So in a sense, Jesus was turning the corner of a new stage of independence. And this was a pivotal point for Jesus. For all intents and purposes, this was when Jesus first started his public ministry. The fact that he was teaching the scribes and scholars in the temple shows us that academically, Jesus was prepared. He could hold his own academically. He was prepared for ministry academically at that point in time. But watch this because it's going to be another eight or nine years before he would be launched into his public ministry. Why? 
Why was there another eight or nine years? Because while he was prepared academically, he wasn't prepared experientially. Sort of like when I graduated from seminary and I had six years of formal education under my belt, four years of undergraduate, two years of graduate school. So I knew, I mean, I, I knew everything. I had anything you ask me, I'll tell you the answer, man. I was ready to go out and save the world before midnight because I had all this head knowledge, right? But what I lacked, what academically I was set, but what I lacked was experience. And looking back, it was one of those things where I didn't know what I didn't know, right? You ever been there? You don't know what you don't know, right? But those who have been here in the church, and there's not very many of them left, but those who have been here in the church, and even people that don't come to the church but have been in this community since we've been here, I think that they would tell you that the experience that I've gained over these past 35 years has, yes, made me a better minister and better equipped me for the work of the ministry. But Jesus, even though he was prepared academically, didn't have the life experience to prepare him for public ministry. Here's how the writer of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 2, verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like them, like you, like you. Even though he was God, he needed to be made fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The message puts it this way. That's why he had to enter into every detail of human life. Then, then when he came before God as high priest to get rid of all the people's sins, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. Translation, literal translation, there's nothing we've gone through, are going through, or will go through that Jesus can't identify with and relate to because he understands. He understands relationships. He understands life. So if he understands life, here's the question. When are you going to talk to him about your life? When was the last time that there was an issue in your life that, that you were struggling with, that you just poured your heart out to Jesus about that? Again, if you haven't done that, you need to do that because he understands. Whatever it is that's weighing on you, you need to know that when you call out to God, he not only hears, he really does understand what you're going through. He understands relationships. He understands life. And thirdly, he understands pain. He understands pain. Not just physical pain. Not just what he endured on the cross, but emotional pain as well. About 700 years before Jesus, again, showed up on this planet, the prophet Isaiah talked about the Messiah coming and described him this way. This was at the end of his life. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind. Anyone ever been rejected? That's, that's not a good feeling, is it? A man of suffering. Despised, rejected, suffering. And remember, he's talking about God here. And then don't, don't miss that last description of Jesus. Very interesting word. And familiar with pain. Isn't that interesting? He was familiar with pain. In other words, even before the cross, pain was a part of Jesus' life. Imagine growing up with a cloud of suspicion surrounding your birth and who your mom really was. We know it happened on at least two occasions when he was an adult. When Jesus was older, Matthew 3 and John 6 both record instances where basically the religious leaders called Jesus a bastard. They didn't use those words. Here's how they said it. They didn't come around. They said, they said well, you know, we have Abraham for our father, implying, implying, hey, we know where we came from, but as for you, tell us again, who's your daddy, Jesus? 
tell us again about that Holy Spirit story. Yeah, Jesus grew up with that cloud over his head everywhere that he went. Because everyone knew that story. Everyone knew that story. Jesus understands because Jesus was familiar with pain and heartache. Earlier we read Matthew's reference to Isaiah's prophecy of the beginning of Christ's life coming as a baby named Emmanuel. That's in, that was in Isaiah chapter 7. Again, fast forward 46 chapters. Isaiah 53, we just read verse 3, but then in verse 5, again, continuing to talk about this, the, the words, the adjectives that he uses to, to qualify that familiar with pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. Those were the nails that were used to nail through his wrist and the spear that was stuck into his side while he's hanging on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, the old English, the King James says, by his stripes we are healed. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and afflicted, pierced, crushed, wounded, oppressed, afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Then look at this next description of Jesus, your Lord and Savior, my Lord and Savior. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Think about that. The one who walked on water, the one who calmed the raging storms, the one who rose from the dead, could have called angels down from heaven any time, and the Roman guard would have been wiped out, been annihilated. But Jesus didn't do that. Why? The writer of Hebrews tells us why. And see, this is what no one saw coming. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He was willing to die, speaking of Jesus, he was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew would be his afterwards. And you know what that joy was? The reason why Jesus didn't call on angels to help him and why he was willing to be led like a lamb to the slaughter? You know what that joy was? It was you. And it was me. At any moment, during the false accusations, during the unjust trial, during the abuse when the soldiers were beating him, spitting on him, slapping him around, Jesus could have said, okay, that's enough, snapped his fingers, and that would have been it. But he didn't. And the thing that kept him from doing that, and this is what's amazing, the thing that kept him from doing that was you, and it was me. Anytime you're going through a difficult time, remember, Jesus really does understand. See, that was Jesus' way of leaning into the pain. That was his way of leaning into the pain. Not only does he understand your pain, he also understands your grief and sorrow. Because think about this. While hanging on the cross, again, this is, this is minutes before he died, Jesus looks down at his mother because the Bible says his mother and, and John were standing there at the foot of the cross. Jesus looks down at his mother, and he says this to her in John 19, verse 26. Woman, speaking to Mary, here is your son. Some translations say, woman, behold your son. But then right after that, he turns and he looks at John who's standing right next to Mary, and Jesus tells him in verse 27, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. In other words, Jesus tells Mary that from now on, John is going to take care of her. Now, that would have been a totally inappropriate statement if Joseph had still been alive. 
That's why many Bible scholars believe that at this point, Joseph had passed. We don't know when. What's your point, Pastor? My point is, and maybe you never thought about this before. I know I hadn't, but Jesus would have attended his own dad's funeral. And again, you think about it, you know, when he attended, when he attended his best friend's funeral, he raised him from the dead. Why, 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 why didn't he raise Joseph from, I, I don't know. I, I wasn't in God's plan. I don't, I can't answer that. But to me, that just would have added to the pain that the, the, the idea, he could have done that. The point being, Jesus understands. He understands. So, last question. When are you going to talk to him about your pain and your grief? When are you going to talk to him about your pain and your grief? When the Bible tells us that Jesus understands and can empathize with us, look, that's not just religious-sounding poetic license. It, it really is true. It's a fact. He experienced it. He felt it. He understands. And he'd really like to have a conversation with you about some of your relationships a conversation with you about some of the issues of your life that you're going through, and a conversation with you about some of your grief and pain and sorrow. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we know he's already made the first move. His nickname tells us that, Emmanuel, God with us. So he's already made the first move. He's, he's, he's come to be with us, right? That's what the holiday season is all about celebrating the fact that God came to us, not as a royal king, riding on a white horse, kicking Roman's butt and taking names. No, he came as a baby, a baby born in a, a stable, and he lived on this broken, messed up planet the same way that you and I do. And he experienced the same heartache and disappointment that we do so he could qualify to be not just our savior, but our friend as well, someone who could come to us and say and mean, I understand. I do understand. James 4, verse 8, come near to God, and he'll come near to you. 